Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. The last message we got through the first five books in one message. Today we're going to do 12 books in one message. Uh, I was uh, driving to Nashville, Tennessee on Tuesday and Jim McBride and I were driving up and I was speaking at a Lifeway Chapel there on Wednesday morning and doing some podcasts and so uh, as I was getting gas in Marietta uh, I was very close to the Air Force Base. I know you remember this from times being in Marietta and at Roswell Street <laughs> and they were doing touch and goes with F-16s and man I love that. I just love I was standing at the gas pump and I hear this thing come screaming over the horizon and it just brought me back when my hair was dark and I was young and, and I would race up to the top of the prayer tower at Roswell Street and watch those F-16s bank around by Roswell Street and come in and do touch and goes and take off and and uh, I mean that thing came scream I mean it, it, it was so close it wasn't even funny you know I in fact the pilot was chewing dentine uh, <laughs> But you know, they come in there just as fast as they can and they just touch down and then they go right back up. And they're just doing those practice runs all, all day, it seems. And, and so I got to watch a few of them come in. And so what we're gonna do today is we're gonna touch and go uh, through 12 books of the Bible. And, and I wanna submit to you today that history is not boring. Now I know some of you have had some boring history teachers and I hope I'm not gonna be one of those. Uh, today, but I minored in history and I love history. I love the study of the people of history. I love the study of the nations. Uh, I, I just love the whole picture of history because the one thing we, we learn from history is we've learned nothing from history. Uh, mankind keeps making the same mistakes and the same errors. But if we study the past and we see what's happened in the past, it gives us uh, awareness and sensitivity to what needs to change in the present and why we need to live certain ways. History has been called his story. In fact, Toynbee said that history is a cycle after cycle of failure. That's because man without God is nothing but a cycle of failure. It's just going to repeatedly be failure. So today, we're going to look at the historical books. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Are you ready? Is your pencil sharp? Are you awake? Do you have your notes out? Because we're going to fly through all of this. Let me, let me give you a little background here. In these books, you see every lesson you can learn from secular history. All combined in the history of one nation and of one people. The Bible is the story, the Old Testament history is the story of God's people, the Jews. And in their story, you see the summation of what has happened in the history of all nations. Times of power and times of defeat. Times when people made good choices and times when people made bad choices. And whatever happens in Israel is a picture of what will happen to you individually, possibly in your family, and in a nation. So we have much to learn from history, so let's dive into the book of Joshua, which is a book of conquest and of life of victory. It begins in victory. It begins with them taking the promised land. Now, why is Joshua important? Uh, 
It is important because it's not enough to get out of Egypt. You're to go into the promised land. God never intended for us to wander around in defeat like the people of Israel did for 40 years in the book of Numbers. God intended us to go from death unto life, from being lost to being saved, and understand that in being saved there is a relationship with God that is deep and abiding and is victorious. It is not without its problems, but it is a life in which God sustains us and gives us victory in the day-to-day -day crisis and battles of life. So obviously the key person is Joshua. The key verse is chapter 1 and verse 8. And the principle is this. If you obey God's word, you prosper. Now he's not talking about prospering and being successful monetarily. He's talking about in your soul, in your life, in your walk, you will be successful. Now sometimes there are successes that come and prosperity means what typically Americans think of it, but that is not the guarantee here. The guarantee is of a life of victory. And there are three things in this book, three stages in this book that tell us the enemies that we face that will keep us from walking in the life of victory. The first one is Jericho. Jericho is a picture of the insurmountable and the impossible. In your life, you're going to face that which is insurmountable or impossible. At some point in your life, at some crisis in your life, there's going to be a walled city. There's going to be an obstacle. There's going to be a barrier that is so intense and so real and so overwhelming that it's going to seem to be impossible. Every one of us face these kinds of situations. And when you face those situations, you do what Joshua did. You go and you pray and you submit yourself to the captain of the Lord of hosts, which is a pre-incarnate visit of Jesus Christ in Joshua chapter 3. So when I face impossible situations, I go to the one who is going to give me the wisdom on how to face those situations. Now, right after Jericho, there comes something. After this victory over an insurmountable, impossible barrier, there's this little town called Ai. Ai. And it's just like insignificant. Where one is impossible, this is insignificant. It's just a, a wide spot in the road. Now, now, why is that in there? Because our tendency is to look at the little things in life and say, I don't need God to help me with that. I can do that myself. I know how to do this. I know how to flesh this out. I know how to make that decision. I don't need to depend on God in this matter. I don't need to ask God for his help in this. And it is a stepping out of constant abiding with God and surrender to God and submission to God to say, God, like the army, you can take a break and we'll go handle this without you. And they came back defeated and over 30 of the men were killed. Why? Because you underestimate what seems to be insignificant. And it is sometimes in the little things that we stumble and blow it. In the big things, in the crisis, we turn to God because we know we have nowhere else to turn. But in the little situations, we say, hey, I can handle this. 
You know, I, 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 I'm of sound mind and body, and I know how to handle this situation. I know how to deal with this. And it is those little things that can destroy us. So the first, Jericho, is facing the impossible. AI is dealing with the insignificant or seemingly insignificant. And then there's Gibeon. You remember the Gibeonites lived just over the hill from where the people of God were, and they disguised themselves. They put on old clothes. They, they dusted themselves up. They made it appear that they had traveled from a long way, and Joshua did not pray. He went on outward circumstances and on face value, and he made a covenant with the Gibeonites and then woke up and realized that he had just made a covenant with one of his enemies and now would be distracted from doing what God had told him to do to take the land to defend the very people that he was supposed to defeat. So the Gibeonites are those who deceive. Has anybody ever come to you and say, man, have I got a deal for you? I've got an offer you can't refuse. I've got some... Listen, the devil works in deception. He disguises himself. He appears as an angel of light. He even brings people that use the language that you want to hear and, and they say things that you think, oh, I agree with that. And then they entrap you and all of a sudden you're in bondage and in a covenant and you're in a commitment with something or someone that is in fact going to bring you down. So you've got impossible situations, you've got insignificant situations, and then you've got deception. All of these are dealt with in the book of Joshua, which is a book of victory. But I want you to turn to Joshua 13, Joshua chapter 13, and then after we go that, we're going to the book of Judges in Judges chapter 2. Joshua 13 deals with one more peril that I want to mention. The impossible, the insignificant, the deception, but there's one more peril that you need to see. Joshua 13 and verse 1. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years when the Lord said to him, you're old and advanced in years. <laughs> like he needed anybody else to remind him of that. And very much of the land remains to be possessed. Let me tell you why that's important. For those of you that are 40 and over, listen very carefully. And those of you that are younger, listen carefully because you're going to be there before you know it. Our tendency is when we hit midlife to start figuring out how can I coast the rest of the way to the finish line? How can I do as little as possible and enjoy the fruit of my labor and just kind of ease on in to life for the rest of my life? And you will miss life by doing that. He says, you're old and advanced in years, but there's more land to possess. That, that means that you and I have a call on our lives that doesn't end when we turn a certain age. It doesn't end when we reach a certain point. It doesn't, it doesn't end when we get our kids raised and in college and now we can go live our lives on the way uh, terms that we want to live it on. It, it says that God says to us, no matter where you are, no matter what your station in life, there is much work for you to do. This is no time to back off in kingdom business, for there is still much land to be possessed. There are still many battles to fight, many victories to win. Now in the book of Judges, 
Judges, unfortunately, is the book that follows a book of victory. It is a book of defeat. And while Joshua covers about 25 years, Judges covers 300 years. And there are three things that define the book of Judges. First of all, they failed to drive out the enemy. They did not continue what Joshua had told them to do. They failed to drive out the enemy. They had an order from heaven that they did not act on. That's in Judges 1 in verse 28. Secondly, they became idolatrous. Idolatrous. They started inviting these false gods and worshiping these false gods and mixing their religion with idolatry. And they became idolatrous, which led to their downfall. And then, once idolatry happened, they began to intermarry with the heathens, with the pagans, people that they were not supposed to marry. So what is the summation here? They lost their distinctiveness. Why is Judges an important book for us to study? Because the church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is losing its distinctiveness in this culture. Very little difference according to surveys in how Christians think and non-Christians think. And it should be light years of difference in how we think and how we make our decisions. They lost their distinctiveness from Othniel to Samson. All the times of judges, they would go into bondage. God would send a deliverer. They would praise God for his deliverance, and then they'd go right back into bondage, pray for a deliverer, and God would send a deliverer, and they'd go right back into bondage. It was just cyclical. They kept making the same mistakes because they would not learn the lessons of their bondage. They would not learn the lessons of not driving out the enemy. So they kept dealing with it over and over again. So in Judges chapter 2 and verse 10, all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them. Notice what it says. Who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Can I suggest to you that Judges chapter 2 verses 11 through 14 are exactly where the United States of America is today. Exactly where we are today. We have bowed down to other gods. We have provoked the anger of God. We have been given into the hands of plunderers who are going to take everything you've got and the government's going to pay for it and we're going to be in bondage and our children's children, children's children's children are going to be paying for our walking away from God. Not only do they plunder, 
sold them into the hands of their enemies. I heard five different people this week on television say, five different people say, if China calls in their cards, we can't pay them. China has been buying our debt, and we are at their mercy. We've been sold into the hands of our plunderers. We need to wake up because we are walking right now through the pages of Judges and we don't even know it as a nation. He says not only have been sold into the hands of their enemies so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. We've got so many potential battles on so many fronts. We're wondering do we have the military capability without going back to a draft to fight the battles that are ahead of us. America has waltzed itself into weakness when we should be standing strong. We are in the book of Judges. And the book ends with a sad epitaph. In those epitaph, there was those days, there was no king in Israel. And if you want to define America today, this is it. And every man did what was right in his own eyes. That sounds like a lot of people today. Just doing what they want to do, what's right in their own eyes. Lacking power should be walking in victory. And right in the middle of Judges, you find the book of Ruth, which happens in the first half of Judges. And Ruth is a picture of faithfulness. She's a picture of God's faithfulness to a woman who has gone through a crisis, who has gone through a failure, who heard from God. She illustrates right there in the middle, her timeline is the same as Judges. She is right in the middle of the first part of Judges and illustrates the life of a person willing to walk with God. And, and, and she is an illustration to us that setbacks can lead us to a Savior. Amen. That, that our failures and our defeats and our hurts don't have to be final in our lives. And so we find Ruth mentioned again in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Here's a woman who was outside, who got inside, and became a part of the lineage of Christ. Now we come to two books of Samuel, books of tragedy and of triumph and of trials. There are three key characters in these books, Samuel, Saul, and David. And we'll hit on each one of them. I'm on my eighth or ninth touch and go now, so are y'all with me? Have you got your bag out in the back seat yet going slow down? I'm getting nauseated. These three characters. The early story of David is interwoven into the story of Saul, which you're familiar with. Samuel is the greatest judge of Israel. He ruled and reigned and oversaw the nation for 40 years. But here was a nation that wasn't satisfied with God being Lord. They were not satisfied with a theocracy. Here was a nation, man I'm seeing a lot of parallels. Here was a nation that wanted to be like every other nation and were almost apologetic for being distinctive as a nation that did not have a king, but a nation that let Jehovah be their king. Amen. 
So here's a people who want a king, and so they, they say to Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 8, 1 Samuel chapter 8, the, these people come and, and to Samuel, and they say, you know, we're not satisfied with government as it is. We, we, we want to be like everybody else. By the way, if you've ever been to Europe, you don't want to be a European country. You really don't. Because every time they get in trouble, they look to us to bail them out. You don't want to be a European country. You don't want to be like everybody else. Why is it that God's people fall for the trap and the deception of Satan that we want to be like everybody else? We want to be ruled like everybody else. We want to be... We want to have the same standards. We want to be like the world. And that's what they're saying. We want a king that is worldly. So that when we call the United Nations of our part of the world, our, our king's just like everybody else's king. So they say to him, 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 5, Behold, you have grown old. Man, they keep mentioning that growing old business. Behold, you have grown old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard that all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. They wanted to lose their distinctiveness. Here was a man of God that they rejected so that they could get a king, and look at the king they got. His name was Saul. We want a king like all the other nations. And so what did they do? They went out and they got the best looking, tallest, most well-spoken king of anybody in the world. And they got Saul. And Saul is known for one thing. Pleasing people and telling them what they want to hear. That's what you learn about Saul. When Saul gets confronted about his sin, about not doing what God has told him to do, he always says, the people made me do it. It's what the people want. It's what the people want. It's what the people need. The people made me do it. Saul never took ownership for his decisions. He always wanted to point the finger at somebody else. Here is a man who didn't do what God said. He was impetuous, he was impatient, and got so far away from God that he consulted a witch. Here is a man who had every opportunity to be something great for God, but he worried too much about the opinions of men. He took too many polls, and he had too many people around him that let him get away without accountability, and he led the nation toward destruction. If David had not intervened, Goliath and the Philistines would have run over the people of Israel. It was only because of a shepherd boy that intervened that the nation was spared. Not because Saul was great, but because God had somebody great coming up the line. 
So we see the story of David. Second Samuel is linked to First Chronicles, and in David we see his successes and victories in chapters one through ten, his failures and troubles in chapters eleven through twenty-two, and his last days in chapters twenty-three and twenty-four. About David, first of all, he wasn't one that fleshly evaluation would choose. Remember, his own father didn't think. He was the one to be the king. He paraded all his other kids out there, but he just left David out in the field. His own father didn't believe in him. David was not a, a man that men would have chosen, but God selected him. Secondly, he defeated a giant when others couched in fear. He defeated a giant when others couched in fear. He was willing to go to war. He was willing to stand in the difficult place because he believed in the power of his God. Number three, he did not have a vengeful, get-even spirit. David could have had that kind of attitude considering how Saul treated him. I mean, you know, boy, you can have a bad relationship with your father-in-law, but when he tries to kill you, that's a, that's a whole other level of a bad relationship. When his Saul tried to kill him, when his son rebelled against him, David was never vengeful. When Absalom died, David wished that he had been the one to die. He was a man who had no guile. He, he, he wasn't vengeful. He wasn't angry. He wasn't resentful. He was a loyal friend to Saul's son, Jonathan, the son of the man who wanted to kill him. He was king over Judah for seven years, then over the United Kingdom for 33 more years. So David ruled for 40 years in a small little area of what we call Jerusalem now. And you can see the old city of David now, but then it expanded under Solomon. But, but he ruled over Judah for seven years, and then the kingdom expanded under David to its greatest width and size and might over the next 33 years. The first part of his reign, he never knew defeat. He never knew defeat. He was always victorious. He subdued the enemies and formed Israel into a military power. He was not just some tribal chieftain as some have tried to suggest. David was a mighty man there was a lot of blood on his hands because he had to fight a lot of battles. But he formed Israel into a great military nation and he extended the borders of Israel from 6,200 square miles to 60,000 square miles. Here is a man who was a great leader. His downfall was one night, which lets me know and lets, should let you know that one act, one night, one decision can tarnish every bit of your reputation. It was with Bathsheba, 2 Samuel 11 and verse 1, that it happened in the spring at the time when kings go to war, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba? And David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her. David belonged in the battle, 
And if he had been where he was supposed to be, when he was supposed to be there, doing what he was supposed to be doing, he would not have fallen into that sin. And from that night, his house was covered with grief and with rebellion and with sorrow. One night led to the rest of his life having to deal with crisis after crisis in his family. Do not think for one minute that one night away from the battle, one day without your spiritual armor on, does not have incredible consequences, for it can. Here's David, who is a great sinner, but the reason that God honored David and not Saul is because when David was confronted with his sin, he did not argue, he did not debate, he didn't blame Bathsheba, he didn't blame the people. He said, I have sinned. He was a great sinner, but he was a greater repenter. He repented deeply, and that's why we have the Psalms. Now we come to Kings and Chronicles and the decline of the fall of the nation. Right after David dies, Solomon takes the throne. These books are primarily the story of Solomon and Jeroboam, who became king of the northern empire. First Kings chapter 3, turn there if you would. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. I know you thought it was your grandfather, but it, really he's the wisest man who ever lived. Because he asked God to give him wisdom, and God did. But he made decisions along the way that unraveled the kingdom. 1 Kings 3 and verse 1. Then Solomon formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It's interesting that Egypt is always the place where Israel seems to go when it's in trouble. It's where Abraham went. It's, it's, it's where they went during the famine, and now he forms an alliance with Egypt. Egypt is always a picture of the old way of life and the old man. And he went and formed an alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord. Notice the order. Notice the order. Until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Self-centeredness. My house is more important than God's house. My house is more important than the defense of the city. And so he built all those things. The people were still sacrificing on the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. Now Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Now, if you just want to mark down these two things, chapter 6 and verse 38, it took seven years to build the temple. Seven years to build the temple, the house of God. Chapter 7, it took 13 years for Solomon to build his house. Solomon cared more about the bed he was going to sleep in and the fixtures in his house than he did about the temple of the Lord. He was more concerned about his convenience than he was about the temple of the Lord. And he loved many foreign women. 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 3 says, His wives 
turned away his heart. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. How'd you like to go to that family reunion? How'd you like to have 700 mother-in-laws? That'll get your attention real quick. Or make you pray. 1,000 women. And they turned his heart away. Paul said, bad company corrupts good morals. You become like the people you spend time with. And that's exactly what we see in Solomon. Then he's followed by Jeroboam and his rebellion. And so Jeroboam the king consulted and made two golden calves. By the way, the golden calves were the items of worship in the northern kingdom of Israel. And he said to them, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, two calves. You've seen a calf before? You've seen a golden calf before? After the Red Sea, they made a god into the image of a golden calf. What was a golden calf? A golden calf was one of the images that was worshipped in Egypt. Again, idolatry and false gods. He said, oh Israel that brought you from the land of Egypt. So what he said is, look, now listen, this is what Jeroboam said. I'm going to make religion easy on you. I'm not going to put the requirements on you of going to Jerusalem and doing all the sacrifices and, and honoring the Word of God. I'm going to give you a watered-down faith that you can be comfortable with and have your false gods and your idolatry and your immorality and still say you love God at the same time. Sounds a lot like American Christianity. A watered-down witness, a watered-down word. And 20 times you see Jeroboam, you, these words, who made Israel to sin. Jeroboam, man-made religion. Adding something to God which takes away from God. Here's what he said. He said, you don't need the Torah and you don't need the temple all you need is to come to me and I've got these two gold calves that you can sacrifice to them. He added to the Word of God and took away from the Word of God. By the way, that's what Jehovah's Witness and that's what Mormons and that's what Muslims and that's what church, uh, Christian scientists do. They say, you don't need to do what the God of this book says. You need another book. You need another revelation because this book is too hard. We'll give you another book to follow. And so Jeroboam made them sin by offering easy religion. Now we come to 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles and the sin that brings division and the opportunities for revival. Henrietta Mears says there's a great difference between the fall of Israel and Judah. Israel was scattered through the nations for an indefinite period, but God specified the length of Judah's captivity to 70 years. Judah was to return to Jerusalem. The Messiah was to come out of Judah, and God was preparing the way for him to come to Israel, not to Babylon or Assyria. So in these books, let me just ask you to turn to 2 Kings 17, because it is a summary verse for, for these books. 
These kings come, they have idolatry, they have immorality, they reject God's plan, some of them are murdered. 2 Kings 17 and verse 16. 2 Kings 17 and verse 16. This is a summation statement of the kings. They forsook all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves images and they sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And if you want to write by 2 Corinthians 17, 16, Romans chapter 1, which says three times, God gave them up, God gave them up, God gave them up. Why? God gave them up because they gave up God. They did not see God nor worship Him, and so God gave them up. It's a parallel to what we see in the book of Romans. The only bright spot in this book are the stories of Elijah and Elisha who stand as God's representatives in 1 Kings through 2 Kings uh, chapter 9. Elisha is the prophet of law and judgment and severity. Elijah is the thus says the Lord. Choose this day who you will serve. Elijah cuts a line in the sand and he says, you're going to have to decide what you're going to do with your life. Elisha is the prophet of grace and love and tenderness. And so in two prophets, we see the Old and New Testament. We see law and grace. We see judgment and forgiveness. In these two prophets, you find a summation of what the Bible is all about. It's about law and it's about grace. It's about judgment. It's about forgiveness. And they picture this in their lives and in their ministry. Now I want to give you the references because of time on five revivals that happened during this time. In a time of declension, in a time of immorality, there were five reformations or revivals that happened during the times of the kings. The first one was during Asa in 2 Chronicles chapter 15. The second is during the reign of Jehoshaphat, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. The third is during Josiah, Second uh, Chronicles 23 and 24. Hezekiah, Second Chronicles 29, 31. Josiah, Second Chronicles 35. Five revivals, which says there's always hope for God to move in and do something significant if one man, one person, will turn their hearts toward God. Now the last set of books, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, from bondage, to battles, to blessings. This happened while they were in bondage. And there are some characteristics here of Ezra and Nehemiah that are true of both of them. Let's look at them real quickly. It'll come up on the screen. First of all, they both begin in Babylon and end in Jerusalem. Both Ezra and Nehemiah, their lives, their stories, their books, begin in Babylon in captivity and they end in Jerusalem. Secondly, they center around the man of God who wrote it. In other words, it's their story of what happened during their lives. It's their testimony of what God did through their lives. Nehemiah is one of the great books on revival and renewal. Ezra is one of the great books on understanding why the Word of God is so important. Thirdly, it began with a decree from a Persian king, which means that God intervenes and uses people that don't even believe in him. And God's sovereign. 
He issued a decree. Ezra went back. Years later, Nehemiah went back to finish the task. Next, it tells of a building project that God honored. Both were involved in building, building projects that God honored. Both books are filled with prayer. They contain much prayer. And both books end with a purified people or a revived people. What is the lesson from these books? Don't grow weary in well-doing. Do the right thing. Do what God says. These are books of victory in the face of opposition, in the face of apathy, in the face of weariness. These are books that tell us that there is victory for those who continue to have a mind to work, continue to do what God says. And then you have the book of Esther. The book of Esther. God gives victory in the midst of impossible circumstances. That's the story of Esther. God gives victory in the midst of impossible circumstances. Here we have that word impossible again. Esther's not mentioned in the New Testament. But you need to know this about Esther. If she had not been willing to risk her own life, the Jews would have been exterminated. And since the time of Esther, nation after nation, people after people, have tried to exterminate the Jewish people. And everyone who has tried has failed. Maybe they should read history. Because it would shed a whole lot of light on what they're never going to be able to do. Because God has a plan for Israel. So, I want to give you some lessons and takeaways. Number one, do the right thing and leave the rest to God. If you're going to study the history books, this is what history teaches us, especially biblical history. Do the right thing and leave the rest to God. You never have to apologize for doing the right thing. Do the right thing and leave the rest to God. Number two, God meets us in desperate times. Many of the days in which we have covered as we've done touch and goes through these 12 books were desperate times and God met his people in desperate times. Number three, prayer is pivotal. Prayer is pivotal. If you want to see God work, then he works in a praying environment. And prayer is pivotal to success in the Christian life. You cannot do without it. Number four, risk brings reward and blessing. Risk brings reward and blessing. And then lastly, when pressures come, when victory seems impossible, God always has the last word. When victory seems impossible, God always has the last word. You read the last two chapters of the Bible and you will find that there's no devil in the last two chapters of the Bible. God always has the last word. You read what Peter said on the day of Pentecost. He said, this Jesus, whom you have crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. He said, you decided to kill him. God decided to raise him up. God always has the last word. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gatt. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. 
If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.